In this, the 88th episode of the Banking with Life podcast, Ryan and I pay tribute to R. Nelson Nash. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Banking with Life podcast. I'm your host, James Nethery. And I'm your co-host, Ryan Griggs. And we're here on a, actually on a beautiful weekday. Typically, we're on a Saturday morning. 20 miles south of Fort Worth, Texas, at the world headquarters of Banking with Life, downtown Alvarado. And today is March 25th. March 25, and that, you know, the date in this episode is uh, exactly why we're here out of our regular schedule. Yeah, so this will post on Saturday the 27th, and the 27th uh, here in 2021 will be the second anniversary of Nelson Nash's passing. Mm-hmm. So, and it will be episode 88 mm-hmm. out of sequence yeah, on purpose because he was 88 years of age when he graduated. Mm-hmm. So that means that we're going to talk about Mr. Nelson Nash this entire time. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and we normally talk about Nelson just about every time we talk, don't we? Yeah. Typically, and uh, you know, look, it's uh, I try to really avoid thinking about people that you've lost in mm-hmm. your life, you know. But at the same time, you know, you think about them every day, so it's kind of a weird paradox. Yeah, but it's all good. You don't want to be positive because. My experience with Nelson from the very first time meeting Nelson has been positive the entire time. So, Yeah, like unusually positive. I mean, on the way over here thinking about, I knew we were going to do this episode, but, um, and I hate repeating myself. So it's like, you know, what could we, what could I mention from my experience that we haven't talked about before? And uh, one thing that came to mind was, just how much of a contrast he was, like his, his demeanor, his approach, everything, relative to what I had gone through in the 10 years prior to meeting him. All right, so it was out of high school, various college experiences, and then during that time, finding Austrian economics, and then starting down that track of moving towards a professor kind of role. and. Just a uh, unpleasant experience all around. <laughs> yeah, so it, you know, in the in the uh, world of economic education, and then the experience of learning from professors, and I don't want to beat anyone up, but you know, that's the experience that you're speaking of, isn't it? Oh yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's just... and then the contrast meeting Nelson, right? Who was, uh, I mean, he was a forester by education, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> He was uh, one of the best dang economists I've ever met. He just didn't happen to work at an institution in a professor-type role. Yeah. I mean, it was really like a saving grace for me. I was in, a, in my master's program in 2016 in Northern California, desperately searching the Internet for what people who did Austrian economics did outside of colleges, outside of <laughs> You had enough of your relationship or experience with professors, so yeah. you're looking to get a little further away from that, but remain in the world of economics? <laughs> yeah. Like, what else? Please, something else. And uh, oh. 
and I had, sounds traumatic. Well, yeah. Well, and, and I had, and I had thought about finance, uh, at you know different types of financial activity, different types of financial jobs, but so many of them were linked back to the stock market and banking, and it's like the statistics were not good. You know, for someone who graduated with an economics degree, it's you went into a graduate and postgraduate and then academic track or you went and worked for the fed uh it's like a government job pretty limited connections I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and most of the universities are state universities so it's like <clears throat> one way or another you end up like murray rothbard used to say you know if the if the state was if, it, if the state did what even it purported to do like even if it was a minimalist state and even furthermore, if we lived in a fully free market, you know, the, the role of the economist would be extremely limited. You know, you would just be teaching people. I mean, there are so many professions today that would be absolutely eliminated. Yeah. If we were in a free market, in a limited government. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, I'm just hearing Nirvana in the back of my mind. Yeah. 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 And that, uh, it, it kind of aligns or mirrors with what I'm saying about my academic experience and in meeting Nelson, it was, it was almost like the, the, co the college thing was a distraction, you know? <laughs> and that meeting Nelson, it was like, you could just put all that aside and, you know, here's a, something that you can do that's economically informed that actually serves other people and you can have a profession, you know, and provide for yourself and family while doing it. Ooh, practice capitalism I mean, and practice, concept. in fact, in action, Austrian economics. Yeah. What a concept. You should, like, probably connect all your professors up with this gig. Yeah. The, the idea that you can become your own banker is a gig I'm talking about. Uh, well, I mean, I mean, I do have professors as clients now, which is always fun. <clears throat> I'm talking about your Austrian professors. I mean. Yeah. I tell you what, I've got lots of economists as clients, and, you know, you can, you can see on paper before you ever talk to them. And then when you talk to them, it's like, oh no, this is what I have in mind. This is what I envision an economist to be. You know, rental properties, side businesses, profitable. You know, I'm just saying. Um, yeah. But you know, if you, if you shared uh, the infinite banking concept, and I don't wanna be harsh, I'm full of love and grace, okay? But if the Austrians understood the infinite banking concept, they'd be out of business. They, they wouldn't have anything to talk about. Mm -hmm. If we practice in a free market, if we had a free market, if we had limited, limited government, you know, the, uh, the CPAs who always love to debate the infinite banking concept or life insurance would be out of a job. The stock promoters, not all of them, but a dang lot of them mm -hmm. would be out of a job. Yeah. yeah, I keep hearing Nirvana playing in the <laughs> back of my mind. <laughs> but that's really what Nelson represented to me was an alternative to all of that. You know, and it didn't have to wait for anything to change politically. It could, it's just a, something that I could do to utilize what I had learned at that point. And, and in fact, after meeting him, the, the then the education really started. You know, I had sort of attained a degree of mastery of competence in praxeology and uh, 
like theoretical the, th- the theoretical side of Austrian economics. But after meeting Nelson, it wasn't you know it was twenty seventeen. I think when I first stumbled upon that alternative notion of capital within the Austrian mm-hmm. world yeah, yeah. and uh, Karl Menger's second 1888 uh, discussion of capital. And then linking that up, and that's one thing I thought about too on the way down here, was you know, the 2019 think tank. So it happened in February, he passed away in March. So he was present for that last one. Yep. And I got to speak there. Uh, and kind of laid out that understanding of capital for the first time and how it linked up so hand in glove with what he wrote about <laughs> in Becoming Your Own Banker. That must have been a revelation for you. Oh, it, be, it was a big deal. Yeah. I mean, it was, like, <laughs> it was exciting. And then, I mean, people have commented when they watched the talk, you know, about how passionate I get. And I, I remember thinking back to it and it's like, yeah, I was like, I was pretty worked up. <laughs> but, uh, because I was so excited and to have him sit, to have him sitting in the front row uh, and to remark at different points, you know, he's like, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Throughout. That was really neat. I, I even, I think I even chuckle at some part in there because he had spoken up so much in the, during the talk that, well, that how, was cool. How, uh, you know, when, so when you're, when you're searching for what economists did, um, you know, outside of the educational track, mm-hmm. you know, what kind of a time period was that that you went through? Like, oh, okay, discovering the infinite banking concept, and it was pretty quick. So it was like early, early 2016, January, late January, early February, maybe, because through a professor I'd become aware of, I discovered Nelson and got his book, read the book real quick, was very excited, looked online to see if he was available, like, like if he had any kind of public presence, and he was still doing his seminars then, and there, it was in May of 2016 that I, that I met him. And by that time, I had already laid out the plan to go to Texas Tech and you know continue down the PhD route, uh, so met him in 2016. First policy, my policy date for that contract's in May. So it was. Do you want to sell that? Less than a I'm month. Just asking. No, I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> it was less than a month after the seminar that I had the contract in hand. So application underwriting. Yeah. Uh, that was a learning lesson in and of itself, wasn't it? I love this concept. Yeah. Oh my gosh, it's a whole new track that I can explore and maybe dive off into. And right. but I want to implement this idea and this concept in my life today. So, so let me dial up a conventional agent and educate, teach him myself. Yeah. <laughs> that was silly, um, <clears throat> but it's okay. I mean, it's not the worst. Yeah, yeah, it's the, not the, it ended up with the worst thing in the world. But um, so yeah, met met him then. Got my first contract. That's 2016. I still went through the first year of the PhD program at Tech, and it wasn't then until so about be about 15 months after meeting him that I decided to become an agent. What made you decide to do that? The the experience that you had with the conventional agent with the big four company that didn't yeah, come here from Sikkim about well, infinite banking and yeah. despised loans and. 
It's a combination of things. I mean, there, there were ones. positive and negative things, you know, push and pull factors. There were, so on the negative side or the push side, there was the experience in academia and just seeing what it meant to become what that world thought of as elite. Uh, it's not pleasant. <laughs> I mean, not that getting not that becoming successful in any domain it should be pleasant i'm not saying that but well, it could be there's nothing wrong with the, yeah you know, a little pleasantry along, along the, way. the way yeah it helps but there wasn't much of that at all <laughs> so, <laughs> so that was unappealing and and i learned something about the some things about the nature of economics education in the u.s that you know you're not going to Unless you're, unless you sort of carve out a niche for yourself, which in something like academia is extremely difficult, uh, just for logistic bureaucratic reasons. No, and pure pure acceptance across the industry. I'm sure that's you know broad. Right. Yeah. So you're you're not going to find like to go out and just teach class like Austrian economics, like to to teach from human action. I mean, it's just there's a there's maybe a handful of people in the country today who do that. Uh, and they're extremely senior. You know, they've they've been around 10, 20, 30 years, and so they've got a degree of security wow, they can do that. that's extremely senior? 10, in, 20, 30 years? To be a professor for that long? Is it? Oh, well, yeah, okay. for sure. And you got to get to that point in order to do what you want. Mm. Right? It's towing the line up until then. Wow, you're like the water boy until then, huh? Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, it's a seven-year... You're fortunate if... Out of a PhD program, you get a job that's tenure track at a university that you stay at, and then you go through typically a seven-year period of associate professorship, then assistant professorship, then full professor with tenure. The the shortest time is usually seven years. No wonder there's all that all that pent up angst, and then they become tenured and then go nuts because they're tenured. Yeah, you know, I don't know. I'm just. That's I was a long over time, academia right? early on in my little education, formal education, early on. But there was just such a heavy appearance that that was the only route. Yeah, you know, if you wanted to do something uh, that involved, you know, intellectual things. All right, so you you, you know that was um, not as positive as that experience. Yeah. Was, so that was, was okay. So then, then, then meeting Nelson and being like. Wow, I could, you know, he would stand up in front of a room of 10, 20, 30 people and just talk and do a seminar. That I really liked because I enjoy getting up and talking in front of people. And I'm like, well, gosh, I mean, I could do that. It's the exact opposite of a classroom or professorial setting, but same fundamental, you know, same thing. You're up there talking, presenting, and uh, teaching, educating. Yeah. yeah. Legitimately, so that was yeah. that was appealing. With an interested audience, right? So the the actual physical activity was appealing. Uh, the content was on point, right? Like it it aligned philosophically and uh, aligned with what I had understood economically. So that was enticing. And then, you know, I had through college, I had worked as a, a waiter at. A lot of different restaurants. and God bless you. I could not be a server. No, you couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> I could. It would be a good one, though. <laughs> but it was, um, 
it's mostly some of the states I worked in. You know, it, it's called sub minimum wage, so it's like two dollars an hour or sure. something. And even in the states where it was a minimum <clears throat> wage, that the the actual wage pay was a relatively small proportion of your actual take home, and all that cash. The, yeah, which is it's a you know people are like oh waiters you know hmm but. Uh, for somebody in school, you know, if, and if you want to develop a social competency, I mean, it's and, and make good money. Yep. You know, depending on where you work, but and make good money, it, it's there. So, I enjoyed the sales kind of thing, where what I did upselling the food. My, no, no, I, uh, I don't the alcohol. I, 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 I feel the same about. The sales tactics in restaurants that I do about the sales tactics, sales tactics in finance or anywhere else, like funnels and programs and all this. It's like no, it's if I can talk to you, figure out what you want, and what you like, and we do that, and you have an enjoyable time along the way, then you know I don't I don't need a I don't need to upsell wow, that, you that or aim for a percentage. Or, it just sounds like a natural occurrence between yeah. You know, uh, willing people that want to be in association. Mm-hmm. What a concept! And I was selective too. Like we are now with company selection and like the who we'll work with and the type of product and and client selection. You know, who who will allow to be a client. Uh, the same principles were in play in the restaurant scene. Right? I wouldn't work somewhere that I didn't like to eat. Sure. If, if it wasn't good food, <laughs> but people do that and they're like, "Oh, I'll just go wherever's hiring." It's oh like, yeah. It's like yeah. okay, well. You know, enjoy working up the energy to make a good recommendation table exactly. side. You know, that would be very fatiguing. Yeah, very. So I was super selective about where I would work, <clears throat> and then that had something to do not just with the food there, but the clientele that would show up at the restaurant. Right, you don't want to work at a, you know, dive or a bum place. Well, if you don't like the food, in this example, the the people that do like the food, there's you know. Um, there's a further separation of likeness. You yeah. know what I mean? So, Absolutely. If you go somewhere that you do enjoy and the people that go there, they enjoy it too, you're more likely to be like-minded. Oh my gosh, like-minded. What? Doing business with like-minded people. Right. What a concept. Free contract. They can go anywhere they want to go to eat and you can go anywhere you want to go to be a server. Yeah. And it's the same sort of thing like from the public's perspective. <clears throat> you know, There's all sorts of people who like to abuse the wait staff. Right now, right. yes, and there's all sorts of people who like to, and that's why I could not be a server, life insurance <laughs> agents. <laughs> oh know? my gosh, the the sales person. But it, point being, I enjoyed doing well in that environment, you know, and walking home and knowing that I worked my ass off and it was you know got paid, got paid, and people were pleased. People were pleased. They They'd come back. Yeah, yeah. So I enjoyed that, and I knew that in that in financial sales, that that was pretty much the dominant model. Is that it's all basically activity. So did you think early on that that could happen in the financial world? That you know structure and that atmosphere and theoretically, you were hoping right? for sure. Yeah, like I knew that life insurance agents get paid commission. Commission that is a percentage of the premium in some way, shape, or form, and that. Theoretically, with enough people or high enough premium, that would mean a good living. And it's like, there's got to be a way there. You're right. You know? Yeah, I thought uh, that too when I first started. Right. And then I get into this. So the first thing after uh, the first year in the PhD program, I went to a captive company. 
you know, where you bought your policy your for, first the policy. same company that I had bought the first policy from. Did I say big four? Didn't know anything about the infinite banking concept. Right. right. Doesn't really like loans. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I shortened of their policies. It, it's funny to look back because I, I was continually shortening how long I would allow myself to endure the nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> That's like, pretty good. I mean, it, it, uh, at, the, it, uh, at the front end of a career, I mean, yeah. good job, young man. I got better at it, you know, uh, like 10 years from, well, out of high school, let's see, 18... Uh, six years of like poking around at various colleges and then narrowed that to academic professorial kind of thing. And only that, that only took one year to figure out that wasn't the way. So we went from six years to one year and then at the captive companies only two weeks. (laughs) And so it's like, you know, I'm learning faster. Right. Uh, Yeah. And then we met in October of 2017. So you're hanging around a long time, man. Yeah. So you had already heard Nelson mm-hmm. um, live and in person. Then you went and bought your first policy, mm-hmm. right? Went through that educational learning process. Um, but then you decided that you wanted to do this. Mm-hmm. And so you went back to that um, big four company, mm-hmm. spent two weeks there, and then um, refreshed my memory on how, you know, how, how we came to meet. Nelson. Nelson, so you decided you wanted a career in the financial world, and that just wasn't the right company yeah. to go with, so, so you wanted to become an NNI practitioner. Right. Right. Went through that program, mm-hmm. and part of that program at the time was, at the time, was a mentorship arrangement. Requirement. And, right. Yeah. Which was a, uh, an, uh, the NNI, trying, the Nelson Nash Institute, trying to improve their processes. Right, mm-hmm. and you know, absolutely a step in the right direction. Mm-hmm. So at that time, they required an interview, which was previously not required. Mm-hmm. Right? So they have to go through the their program of Austrian economics and um, I think some fundamental life insurance training, but not a lot of that. And then they had that, and hence the mentorship program. They wanted to pair new practitioners with experienced infinite banking concept mm-hmm. agents and have that mentorship arrangement for some time period and then that's part of the process of becoming a recognized practitioner mm-hmm. right at that time it was mm-hmm. so and uh, okay so you did all that and then um, and then the next time I saw Nelson was you hosted him mm-hmm. actually in this room <laughs> where we are right I mean, that's why we moved over here we were next door and then we moved over here to the larger physical footprint and they have a well, this is the old county courthouse or sub courthouse of Johnson County. And so there, we're in the actual old courtroom. So there was room to do live events. Yep. That's why we're here. And Nelson was here a couple of times. I mean, he's, he was on one of the early um, podcasts. I think it was the first one, too. yeah. I think. Mm-hmm. He did a Q&A here, Nelson Live. or <clears throat> And uh, so, yeah, we're here. And I, I do remember that, that... Um, you were in Lubbock at the time, and and I don't remember. I think it was the first time I met you face to face. Actually, we had talked over the phone. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, I don't remember. I mean, listen, I'm I don't have a memory like an elephant, but I've got a great memory. But you know, I only have so much room in this big egghead. <laughs> but um, and I don't want to jump over the fact that 
you know, Nelson, right, is the one who um, thought it best that I mentor you, that you mentor with me. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how many uh, practitioners there were at that time. And I don't know how many are in Fort Worth or in Texas, but you were in Lubbock, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful for that. And I think, you know, it's just more evidence Same. of how smart Nelson was, my opinion. So we spoke over the phone, mm-hmm. right? And then he was coming. And I think I kind of told you you needed to be here. Yeah. And uh, yep. you did. You drove six hours mm-hmm. to be here. Unless you were speeding, then couldn't make it three and a half. <laughs> <laughs> and that was when? It had to be late 2017. It was like October, November. Yeah. Seems like we did a lot of seminars around October for some reason. I don't know. It just worked out. Before that the way. holiday. It would be before Thanksgiving and stuff. Oh, okay, November. Yeah. And so, I mean, his schedule and our schedule. But it just seems like, I mean, we have hosted Nelson a lot of times over the years, and it just seemed like they were... You know, you try to do one, get people to come and, you know, and then it developed into three times a year. So mm-hmm. you're giving your clients an opportunity to hear him again and again. And it just seems like October and November, we did a lot of seminars. That's yeah. all I'm saying there. Yeah. Okay. So you came and you listened and you thought, oh my gosh, this is it. Yeah. I mean, there was a, a magic to when he would talk. Every time it would, it was like a refreshing you know, you know, goosebumps again, kind of thing. It's like, oh my gosh, this is really. You know possible. that you, you mentioned that I was speaking with a client yesterday on the way home. I mean, I wake up and I stick an earphone in my an earbud in my ear and I talk all day, mm-hmm. and I drive home and have conversations on the way home. I was speaking with a client, um, and uh, he said, "Wow, James." He said, "The uh, client only access. He's a client, right?" And, like really enjoy that and he's a farmer so it's on tractor time you know and and uh he was he was commenting and he had he had purchased um nelson's six and a half hour uh presentation on dvd that you can get that's available from nni and i encourage everyone to purchase that and if maybe we'll put a link down here you can get a discount if you purchase that through our office and Take advantage of it if you wish, and if you don't wish, it's okay. I don't. I don't receive your information to market to you. <laughs> you know, just <laughs> you get a discount if you purchase it. Um, but he was saying that it was how powerful that was. You know, reading the book and then listening to Nelson and then listening to the client-only content that we have. And and I told him, <clears throat> and it's true. You know, I think he's been kicking this around for a couple of years, been mm-hmm. a client for, you know, less than that. And uh, I'm like, listen, and we always talk about an element of unknowing. You know, there's a certain element of trust and faith, mm-hmm. right? Because, you know, what they read and what they hear, they don't know the, the, the perspective policy owner, the perspective infinite banking person, um, the person who wants to become their own banker. And they're at the front end of that. They don't really know, right? They're reading this, and this the book was printed in 2000. It was revised in 2010. Here we are in 2021. 
and I recognize there's an element of faith and unknowing. Mm-hmm. You know, so they do their vetting, however that is done, and the really smart ones listen to this episode and all the content on this channel. Because if you can't vet someone's character watching a hundred hours in video, you probably, you know, you have an opportunity to improve is my, you know, commentary. My whole point is this. Let me get to my point. <laughs> um, we were talking about that element of faith. You know, he's going to like open additional policies, which he should. He started too small like the rest of us. Um, and it's okay. But he sees that what he expected is in fact actually happened mm-hmm. and happening um, and maybe a little better than he really, right? And so what's wrong with that? Nothing. And I was just sharing with him. Um, his name's Jake. I'm like, Jake, you know, it's if I was in, if I didn't have the opportunity personally to hear Nelson one to three times a year over a 15-year time period, I probably wouldn't, you know, do what I'm doing. So, um, and I have said from the beginning, when you start too small, or in my case, when we started buying life insurance policies, and it was a lack of faith that we mm-hmm. started so small. You know, but I didn't realize that at the time. I just mm-hmm. didn't trust the life insurance companies. You know, go figure. Yeah. After being in the life insurance business 14 <laughs> years, right? So I'm, I've said it many times, you know, but not everyone listens to every episode or everything that I've said previously. I penciled the numbers. I penciled the life insurance company. I penciled the dividend. I penciled the loan interest rate. I penciled everything for the first several years, right? And then finally you quit penciling it. You quit proving the math and the numbers. And hence the reason, you know, I don't do these exotic uh, presentations and try to prove a 37% rate of return or printing money out of thin air like the bankers and all of the shenanigans that go on. Um, so I was just expressing the fact that and acknowledging the fact there is an element of unknown. No kidding, the future is unknown. I don't care what you do. Mm-hmm. The future is unknown. Um, and that most of my clients have more faith than I do hmm. because they didn't necessarily, <clears throat> especially newer clients, <clears throat> excuse me, they didn't have the opportunity to hear Nelson live or more than once, you know, and I did, and they're doing, yeah, you know, and they're hopping right on it, yeah. yeah. So I, I just think that's very powerful, and, mm-hmm. and I'm humbled, you know. So, well, we come back every now and then to the idea of like the impact he's had, as far as you know, you could think of it on different levels. The amount of premium people pay, like all the, not just his clients, but. The clients of the agents. No question. The, the clients of the agents of the agents, you know, and the, how far down that trickle. The life insurance industry couldn't even calculate that. Yeah. The amount of life insurance that Nelson Nash directly himself put in force because he was an agent in 1964. Mm-hmm. He quit writing policies outside of his family members and in his, uh, his clients. Uh, in 2000 when he printed the book Mm. right whoa what a concept wow 36 years huh 36 years yeah and he won every award that the companies that he wrote Mm. had right lifetime yeah I mean lifetime achievements I mean when he was an agent I mean 
he wrote a tremendous amount of life insurance. So, and then, I mean, uh, he, you know, he, 1980, he started teaching this, becoming your own banker, right? And the book was a culmination of all of the teaching that he had done and all, well, and the experience that he had as a forester, as a Christian, as an economist, and as an Austrian. Um, and, and he would let agents come, right? So, of course, most of them wouldn't. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and most of them didn't hear about Nelson. The life insurance company didn't promote him. They didn't promote the infinite banking concept. Half of them, most of them still think it's a sales gimmick. Right. And, you know, a lot of agents treat it like it's a sales gimmick. And, you know, it is what it is. So a lot of people think it's a sales gimmick. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and people can think whatever they want to think. <laughs> but at the end of the day, you know, when he was, when I met him, he was doing 40 to 45 seminars a year. Padna. And I met him when he was like <laughs> 72. All right. Yeah. I mean, that's, and I told him all the time, I mean, you, you work harder than most 40 year olds that I know. All that's right, a so lot. That's a lot. That's a lot. Traveling now, for each one of those two day seminars each time. That's a lot. That's a lot. And then, and then he didn't do 40 or 50 every year. I'm just saying there were several years there that, you know, he was working. And so you look at all the people that attended and the agents mm. that attended and the agents that, you know, were, uh, embraced the idea, mm-hmm. right? And then they started practicing it and then they started teaching it. And it's like, you cannot calculate the amount of life insurance that that man caused to be enforced. Okay, excuse me. Well, beyond the life insurance, right? So look at how many generations he's touched, mm-hmm. right? I mean, he's had clients, his clients, I mean, they're great, great grandchildren, right, are affected. Then the agents, um, there's, two and three generations for the agents mm-hmm. and then their clients. Their I mean, it's, it's phenomenal. It's unbelievable. Yeah. And it's just beyond the dollars, you know I mean? The, uh, the, the free thinking that he has caused, it's incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, very, very powerful. I know he changed my life. That's for dang sure. Um, you know, I met him, I think I met him in 2004. I know I, I always I need to, I should go back and look and see when I actually met him and um after 14 years in the life insurance business having no idea you could do with life insurance what you could do with life insurance and everybody knows that if you have a cash value or an account value with those jank UL policies they have a loan provision. Mm-hmm. You know what I didn't know and I was never taught. Um, the cash value was not an idea of the life insurance companies. Mm. The loan value or the loan ability, the loan provision in the contract was a life insurance company's concept, right? Because they wanted the client to be able to borrow against the cash value to pay a premium. To pay the premium, <laughs> yeah. So... Um, but beyond that, um, you know, and I, when I heard Nelson, you know, the first time I heard him, you know, he said that this is, and he says it, he said it every time. This is a exercise in a imagination, reason, logic, and prophecy. Mm-hmm. 
And I heard prophecy. That's what stood out to me, right? And I'm like, hmm. Now I'm sitting in the back taking copious notes. You know, I'm just, you know, a life insurance agent in the back of the room, right? But, of course, he, you know, had the opportunity to meet him. And if you did, he, you know, made you feel very special, personal, very direct contact. Southern gentleman, the epitome of. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'm just like, Why? Why hadn't I ever heard of this? You know, and then he talked about, you know, his brother and uh, worked for IDS, Investors Diversified Services, which became American Express. Hmm. And they had the investment plan, right? If you had $10,000 over a million years in the market, you could become a billionaire, right? I mean, I'm adding, I'm emphasizing what he said. Um, since you don't have $10,000, we can put you on a monthly savings program. And once you get Mm. to X number of dollars in the future, then you can start an investment portfolio. And you had to sign, it typically took seven years. And you had to initial right there in seven years. By the time you put in money over a seven-year period, you'd have equal about what you put in, and then you could go into an investment program. Mm. Yeah. Well... Earlier in my career, <laughs> I uh, I uh, was with a Fortune 500 company um, who today owns two mutual fund families. And back in the day, the mutual funds had an eight and a half percent front end load. Well, you'd you, you'd have a, nobody would buy that today. You know, you'd have a heart attack if you mm-hmm. had to pay that today. But that's the way it was back then. And so it wasn't, that's just the way it was. And uh, they had that very same program, right? If you had a bunch of money, you could start, you know, if you don't have the minimum threshold to start this investment program or portfolio, you could get on the savings plan. And you had to initial it right about seven years into it. I still have some of those old documents. So when he said that, I heard that. Right, I mean, I had done that. I knew who IDS was. I had applied with them previously in my career. Mm-hmm. And they told me, you can't sell life insurance. You can't sell investments. You'll never make it in this hmm. industry. <clears throat> and they were one of many, you know, previous to that. Uh, I remember uh, interviewing with different life insurance companies and had to take the Limra. You know, it's mm-hmm. like a psychological test to see if you can sell. I felt it every time, <laughs> you know. And these big, robust men, and listen, I'm fat for a reason, because I like food, okay? <laughs> these fat guys like food, but they didn't work out either. I don't know how many of them told me, well, James, you, you know, it's not going to be a good fit here. You can't write life insurance. You can't sell life insurance. You can't sell investments. You know, you're just this is not for you, you know? And now, I'm, I don't know. <laughs> probably write more life insurance in a week than they did in the in their best year yeah and i'm not bragging i'm just saying mm-hmm. right but they're right i couldn't sell life insurance you know i'm a complete failure is their ideal model of a life insurance right. salesman don't fit their role mm-hmm. you know and i'm okay with that right <laughs> um but anyhow so if you look at it's kind of like the, the pebble in a pond, you know, the ripple effect that people have throughout a life or lives or generations. 
And he's no different, and we've said it before, we've talked about it, than his mentor, Leonard E. Reed, mm. you know, who also mentored Ron Paul and many other men and women, right? And I think there's one video, or maybe two of the same one video, of Leonard E. Reed giving a presentation. And so Nelson used to have Leonard E. Reed come to town and put on presentations, and he invited his clients, and liberty and freedom. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Um, but if you look at how many lives Leonard E. Reed touched, how many lives Ron Paul has touched in the political world, you know, they went two different, you know, Ron Paul went into politics, and Nelson went into forestry and had an experience somewhat like yours. It wasn't what he thought it to be, and then went off into economics. Mm-hmm. Thank God. And look at how many people he's touched. Yeah. I don't know how many. I mean, anyway, a lot of people changed a lot of lives. And we'll change a lot of lives that, you know, we won't ever have the opportunity to see or meet or enjoy their success and their outcome. Yeah. And I think what's happening now in sort of the development of this niche of, of the IBC community as far as advisors are concerned is at least based on my what I've seen is that you had a lot of guys and a few women who were in finance in some other field mm-hmm. then they met Nelson and most of those who incorporated IBC did so partially right they kept the rest of their business going the assets under management Mm-hmm. Uh, property and casualty insurance, mm-hmm. whatever the pension stuff, you know, tax qualified plan stuff, kept some of that added, some IBC stuff. Mm-hmm. There's and, some of that, no question. And I think now, and I don't, I'm not saying I'm the first, but of this generation, <laughs> you know. You Lone Ranger, man. Just doing IBC, mm-hmm. you know, only. And it's interesting to, you know, who knows whether that'll stick. You know, I, my first year was brutal, and we were we had the opportunity to talk with some life insurance home office people. You and I did recently, and um, one was asking, you know, what I want to do in a few years from now, whether I see myself having agents underneath me and. I'm like, huh, <laughs> probably not. <laughs> He's like, oh, why? It's like, I, truth, truth be told, I don't like most agents. I don't like, not who they are as people, but the business. I just don't, not interested in that. And it, No, I'll be honest. Some of them, you don't like them as people. Uh, so, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know. But it's I okay. Just, we don't have to like everyone. They don't like us. I mean, not them, but anyone, right. everyone. You know, we don't, it's all, you know, love, kumbaya. I mean, there's some people that, that I don't like. Well, There's just a lot like of people that don't like me. But just like you were saying, you know, you failed all the tests and all the conventional the know, Limbra interviews. test. Other than that, I'm a pretty dang good test taker. Yeah, I didn't the meet driver's the driver's license test. <laughs> <laughs> Let me see. But it, the same deal. It's like I, the, there's a. I feel a lot of friction with the conventional industry. There is and. Yeah. To the point that I struggle with even, like, of course I only do IBC. What, you know, we've talked previously on the show, I forget the episode about, you know, what a financial professional is and what, you know, the question that they should be asking and the, the, the need or the, 
the problem they should be solving for people, mm-hmm. right? Helping people understand the need for capital and then how to systematically accumulate it and deploy it efficiently over their lifetime. Like to me, that's the question to be solved. That's what IBC is doing. And it's like, if that's what I'm going to do in a professional capacity, well then what else am I going to do? Yeah. You know, like give you a quote on your car. I mean, it's like, I don't think too many PNC agents really grasp the idea. I mean, most of the big PNC companies, they have quotas, right? No, no kidding. Right. And so they have, and I don't want to mention any names, but they're household names, property and casualty agencies, you know, um, Which, by the way, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, if you sell that product, then fine. It's just, I, no, I mean, there's a need for it. I mean, you want, you have an automobile, you, well, you, you're forced to have insurance, but you should have insurance in it, on it anyway. Right. Your real estate, your home, your office, whatever it is. But I'm just saying those property and casualty agents have quotas. They have to write a certain amount of life insurance. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, oh, okay. The uh, Maybe they have to write a certain amount of annuities. I don't know mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. to be true, but. Um, you know, I, I hear what you're saying. So you, you don't want to, and you don't do anything but practice the infinite banking concept. And I see that my point in bringing that up is I see that as an extension of Nelson's legacy, like because of what he did 20 years in in 2000, Mm -hmm. writing the book, becoming your own banker, 20 years later ish, there's people just doing what he taught. Yep. Right. There's only a few of us. But there's there, it's happening, you know, and it's just got to start somewhere. Yep. There are people who are just teaching what he taught and making it that way. And then there's a bunch of people who <laughs> take what he taught and switch the words around, come up with different cute ways of saying it, and then they get a YouTube channel and... <laughs> Then, then, then you have to deal with 1090. <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, it's like 1090 or IUL or, you know, you, you've got to do the HELOC and then you've got a lowest interest rate environment ever. You've got to go borrow a bunch of money to run it through your life insurance policy to buy turnkey real estate. And it's, you know, all kinds of stuff. The uh, tons of noise out there, tons of noise. But, you know, I, uh, I respect that and... There's nothing at all wrong with that. Um, you know, I do more than the infinite banking concept because I had a tremendous amount of clients. Well, there's several reasons, not any one reason, but I had a lot of clients when I met Nelson, you know, mm-hmm. and have gained a lot of clients since I've met Nelson. And, you know, there, when, the, when you meet someone, a prospective client, you know, you've got to, and I think I've made a presentation titled, you have to meet the client where they're at. You yeah. know, they've done whatever they thought was best for them up until the time that you've met, and and they're still going to do what's best for them. I'm just saying there's, in in 30 years, uh, so um, 30 years of practice, I have uh, the majority of my career has been correcting mistakes. Mm. You know, and I'm not saying that in an arrogant fashion. Of course, the clients that I meet, they're typically not happy where they're at or they wouldn't be reaching out, right? So um, right, wrong, or indifferent. You know, the older they are, the more financial products they own and the more strategies they have been exposed to or participated in. So, 
Maybe they have life insurance that their brother-in-law purchased or sold them. They purchased from it because everybody and their brothers has had a life insurance license. And the reason is because it's so easy to get. Mm-hmm. And everybody thinks that the uh, commissions are so high that you're going to get rich and retire or whatever. And then when they have a tough year like you did or a tough nine years like I did, this, you know, I think 90% of the agents, first-year agents, don't make it, you know, past the third year. Mm-hmm. The majority of the attrition is in the first year. I mean, it's tough. It's I know we make it look easy. I know I make it look easy. Thank you for the opportunity. Um, but there's a whole tremendous team here. I can't do, I can do anything, but I can't do everything, right? And so when the home office people, uh, never mind, I won't go down that route. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying that, um, you know, I, I do more than the infinite banking concept because of the clients that I meet. They're potentially they have very complicated financial mm. arrangements and um, but I must say that all of that other stuff is ancillary. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to deal with it um, in some form or fashion. But it's, but I agree with you, and, and I think that, you know, the more people that become aware of the infinite banking concept, the more people that become aware that you can become your own banker and what that means beyond the little click funnel gimmicks uh, targeted you know, if you're listening to this episode, if you're listening to any of our episodes, you're going to be targeted by all these click funnel marketers, right? They use keyword search, banking with live, Nelson mm-hmm. Nash, infinite banking concept, James Nethery. Don't think that all of those, you know, videos that are coming up to the right of your screen are accidental. <laughs> you know, they're... YouTube does have a great algorithm and people pay a lot of money for the keywords. So I'm just saying that uh, there's a reason all of those things come up, but the more people that understand the infinite banking concept and what becoming your own banker actually means beyond purchasing life insurance, um, the less and less... uh, all of these exotic financial products and solutions will even have an interest. Yeah. You know? So. Yeah. And like in the grand scheme, talking about having other clients and the correcting mistakes of the past, I mean, there's, and when I first started, there was like a, a feeling of inadequacy, like I'm just selling life insurance. Uh, and, and there's the, people out there that'll help you feel that way. Yeah. Yeah. And then the, you know, especially in the, when I was at that captive company, the people who are, it was expected that you went on to get securities license. You know, of course sure. you were going to, you know, go sell stuff related to the stock market. And uh, I've done a total 180 on that now. And Nelson would say that this is r- ridiculously simple. And really when the capital thing clicked for me, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, and it really solves all the problems. I mean, there's no, there's no, there's no objection that people have ever raised that Nelson didn't either answer specifically or laid the groundwork that for, so that you could answer it and you you could see just how 
closely connected it was to his line of thought. Like the one I'm thinking of is the inflation question. Mm-hmm. I have, uh, the dollar devaluation, and I'm really kind of over talking about it because it's <laughs> the the Austrian people have done the public no favors by consistently doomsdaying, you know, consistent you know, hyperinflation is just around the corner. We're going to be Weimar <laughs> Germany tomorrow. Yeah, right. Uh, it's just exhausting to me. And like Nelson would point out uh, that even in a, a price inflationary environment where the purchasing power of the currency is falling, he's like, well, I keep paying in those depreciating dollars. And it gets me more and more cash value what? every year. Wait a minute. The dollars that I'm paying in are depreciating. And the longer, the further out I go, the less valuable they are. And but the more with the life insurance, <laughs> there's an increase in an exponential curve in the opposite direction. Up. Yeah. The value of the cash value, the value of the death benefit. And everybody in the infinite banking world, not everybody, I don't want to paint with such a broad brush. I have uh, my fanboy critics the death benefit, you can devalue the death benefit all you would like to. Mm-hmm. All you would like to. As my son Jake points out very clearly, by construct, the cash value must equal the face amount at the end of 120 years. All life insurance, whether you have a 10 pay, 30 pay, 20 pay, whatever. That's in fact true. By construct, the cash value must equal the death benefit or the face amount at age 120. And they're both growing over time. So my question would be, do you want a little death benefit at age 120 or do you want a large death benefit at age 120? I rest my case. Mm -hmm. Okay. Just like when you mentioned 90-10 earlier, um, Nelson wrongly, incorrectly People read Nelson's book, agents included, and say, oh, this is how you do it, mm-hmm. right? Nelson said many times, you've heard me say many times, if you've listened more than once, that Nelson wouldn't have put illustrations in his book if he were to rewrite it or to do it over again. Okay. But if you look at equipment finance, and they're all different throughout the book, CD Sisters, you know, the cost of a college education, in equipment finance, 60% of the premium went to a PUA, 40% of the premium went to a base, right? So everybody assumes that 60-40 is right. And so you have, uh, when you mentioned ninety ten earlier, I've heard of the presentations. I do not watch all of that stuff that comes up on your right. I don't watch it. All right. Well, ninety ten. 1090, 90 to the PUA in term, and 10 to the base. 90 is bigger than 60. No kidding. Mm-hmm. Right, no kidding. I'm just saying you can oversimplify. It's uh, You look at a policy construct and say, oh, that's the right thing to do. You look at a life insurance illustration and look at how well and wonderful indexed universal life illustrates. Well, that must be it. That must be what you need to do. That's right. Because this number is bigger than that number. So let's put all of our chips in. Let's throw tons of money at that. Mm -hmm. So, 
Yeah, one his one thing I wrote down too is what I was thinking of when I was driving down here is how the the purity and consistency of his message really kept me going in that first year. Mm-hmm. You know, you talked about turnover in the industry uh, that it's so high, and that yet simultaneously you have agents who want you know they want to split a couple of cases with you, and then you know they'll have the answer, they'll know what to do, and then go repeat it. You wonder why that <laughs> results in such high turnover. It's mm. you know he had a. Um, and I've thought about mentorship a lot and spoke about it in the 2020 Think Tank talk. And um, I'm, I'm not sure mentorship is even the right word. Uh, I think people, I, th- I think it has like a casual connotation, you know, a mentor, someone, you know, you have dinner with every now and then and talk about like grand wisdom and all that. I, I mean, there's a degree to which that was a, that's part of it and like, there was certainly a, a mentor-mentee relationship between Nelson and I. I know there was between you and him, but I think I, I wonder if a better word is apprenticeship, because it's it's to me that sounds more rigorous, more technical, more structured, longer term, more involved, uh, harder. You know, I, I think of like craftsmen guilds or. Uh, uh, metal workers guilds in you know 1600 1700 where you know you'd be a apprentice for seven years before uh, you could servant yeah. Benjamin, Benjamin Franklin yeah it's a much uh, more accurate <laughs> model for what it means to yeah. come up in the business than a journeyman yeah than a master yeah. you know, different trades and what a concept yeah, it, yeah it, what a concept it's really I think it's a better fit and mm-hmm. That's what it's felt like with Nelson and now with you. It's just a, it's a constant, consistent learning experience that just continues. And, uh, Which yeah, is the way it should be. Yeah. Right? We should always continue learning. But if you don't have the correct – the longer you go without a correct foundation, if you're continuing – you spoke to it earlier on your – the time periods of your learning, building blocks of your learning shortened. Well, that's a – you know that's attributed to you to mm-hmm. recognize that this isn't right mm-hmm. or something's better something's missing i'm just saying the longer you go on a weak foundation the more fragile it becomes mm. right so yeah. if you have a solid foundation then you can build whatever you wish on top of that um in the short-term thinking when you speak or spoke that nelson really really simplified a lot of things. And as a matter of fact, so simple, the, the 92 pages is so simple that mo- a lot of people have a tendency to jump over it, mm-hmm. and especially the academics, you know, uh, or the, the highly educated individual, whomever they are. You know, it's easy to jump over the simplicity. I mean, I heard a girl talk one time. She was in, maybe is still in the financial services industry, and she referenced Nelson's book and and then promptly explained how poorly it was written mm. when she might have had a bachelor's, maybe she had a master's in, you know, free love or whatever. <laughs> and you're going to criticize a 92-page book because you're trying to promote yourself as someone in the financial world. You know, and, and I just, I'm like, poor girl. Yeah. You know, that's too bad. Um, that was a long time ago, and it's come up different times. So I'm not going to read a book. 
Why do I need to read a book? I get the concept. I got it. Just let me go. Mm-hmm. All right, you can go. Goodbye. <laughs> I mean, um, but the, uh, you know, think long range. Mm. In America, we have a hard time doing that. You know, thinking generationally, very few people do that. Yeah. And then don't be afraid to capitalize, i.e. don't be afraid to pay a premium. Right? And if you have to get, quote unquote, everything out that you put in as soon as possible, you're afraid to capitalize. Right. And you're not thinking long range. Yeah, the failure the, fa- the failure to abide by that rule has really caused so much confusion. I mean, <clears throat> you know, they, they, get, they get the money in and then, then the, the idea of premium equaling income day one, you know, I'm going to put everything I have into a policy to go get a policy loan and I'm going to use the policy loan funds to finance my lifestyle. And then year two is going to come around. I'm going to pay another premium. I'm going to take another loan to pay for But I, then I got this big old loan balance outstanding and here comes another one. And now I just have more and more of a loan balance piling up. And, you know, I, I don't really get, yeah, that, that I mean, that's the journey into the wilderness, right? <laughs> Going off into the noise. And it comes from, a, a refusal to embrace capitalizing, a refusal to embrace that early illiquidity. And it, it fits hand in glove with uh, think long range. You know, I was having a conversation with a current client yesterday, he, talking about his next policy and potentially not using term or using less term and <laughs> sending more of the total, what? sending more of the total premium to the base. What? And I was telling him about the policies I own and the percentage that goes to the base which is more than most people who just start off will do when they when they get their first policy and but I was telling him why I do that. You know that the the willingness to take on that additional illiquidity will mean a, a higher cash values and death benefits way, way down the line. Like it, it's going to be a while. It's going to be decades. But when I get there, you know, I can look back and say, well, I put up with, I, I endured the cost of the illiquidity. I endured mm-hmm. the, I embraced capitalizing early on. And the benefit is now higher values where I will be at that time. Look, the further out you go on, look at all life insurance illustrations or investment performers or whatever, the, the better the numbers look. But when you say that, it does not mean you have no access or no liquidity. Right. Right. That you do Just, not have any access to capital until you get way, way out there. So let's be clear. Yeah. You're enduring a loss of liquidity or a lack of liquidity for a time period. And it's, but you're enduring less liquidity for a time period. Right? Yeah, you still have less. access. Not that there's none. Exactly. Not that there's zero. I can well, get a policy loan day one, no question. But of the total pre- of the total annual premium from going to the life insurance company, in my contracts, a relatively higher percentage is going to the base. Right. Uh, which means that compared to a policy where there's less going to the base and more going to the PUA, there, there, there's going to be more liquidity there. There's going to be higher cash value early on. Um, but the long-term effect will be great. And so that, but you don't see that, right? There, there's not a tsunami of commenters talking about how, you know, well, we should be paying a higher base, you know? <laughs> 50-50 is the only way to go. <laughs> it's it's 10-90 is the only way to go. So it, it's just- Or now it's 80-20 now or, you know, and I'm not, I, you cannot leave out universal life. Don't leave that out because I see it every day. 
you know, and then until they're in their 50s or 60s and they're like, oh my gosh, James, I've been listening to you for months and everything that you have said, I'm watching happen in my policies. Mm -hmm. Whether they're 1090 and you're in the third year, whether you have a HELOC that you funded the first year's premium and then collateralized, oh my gosh, uh, 100% of your loan value. Now you're in the second, third year, and it's like, well, how am I going to come up with the premium, James? I'm like, why are you calling me? Mm-hmm. Well, because this is the other guy or the other person is like, oh, my gosh. So um, <laughs> just don't leave those other scenarios out because 1090 is very prevalent, and you're being stalked. If you're watching this, I'm telling you you're being stalked. So yeah. expect to have 1090, Universal Life, HELOCs blow up your device, whatever you're yeah. watching on. But what I'm saying is that all of that is a consequence of not abiding by these very simple rules. And it's a continuation. Listen, if we go back, think long range. Right? Don't be afraid to capitalize. Um, be an honest banker. Repay your loans. Don't do business with banks, i.e., other than you know checking and savings. Don't be dependent upon third-party lenders. And then he added in the last several years of his life, Change, rethink your thinking. And this is a the 1090, the universal life, the HELOC, all of that is a continuation of flawed thinking, period. That's what I spoke about at the Nelson Nash Institute in 2020, mm-hmm. right? It's all the noise that is out there and you can't get rid of the noise fast enough and we're all in it, right? So you mentioned a client. I had a conversation with the client. You know, I have a phone in my ear on the way to work, mm-hmm. on the way home. Beautiful people. I love them all. I wish I could meet you all face to face and maybe we'll have the opportunity. This gentleman, been a client about a year, pays substantial premium, has policies on himself, his children, Jim. I hope you're going to be a guest sometime in the future. So this element of faith and unknowing, right? And when we met, excuse me, he had coverage that wasn't correct. So we corrected it, okay? He still is listening to all this stuff, listening to the 1090. He had an IUL. And so he gets a first-year dividend, right? And of course he was concerned and that it might not be what was illustrated, (laughs) right and so (laughs) he's like oh my gosh James the uh, the uh, he he specifically mentioned 1090 he said the dividend that was paid on the base compared to the PUA and the PUA and the PUA he said uh, I think I want my third policy to be all base Right. He, then, I mean, and, and most all of my clients, and I'm sure yours as well, are paying substantial premium no matter what it is mm-hmm. relative to their situation, right? And so when you push through the noise, right, when you push through the noise, when you choose to vet the noise against, you know, what's said, what Nelson said, what he's written, um, it is worth it. The yeah. search for the truth you will be rewarded, in my opinion, if you avoid the noise. Now, if you succumb, for whatever reason, we're all human. I'm not saying at the end of the day, you know, it's devastating and you can't overcome it. 
But in the future, whenever you've used up all of your insurability <laughs> and you can't expand because of the amount of death benefit that some of those Frankenstein structures require, and I'm specifically mentioning or referencing a presentation that I did at the Nelson Nash Institute several years ago. This is nothing new, these constructs. I spoke about them. I don't know what year. 2014, maybe? Yeah, I don't know. 13? A room full of agents. I mean, a room full of agents. And I don't know that they heard some, not all. I'm not saying all of them. None of them heard me. They're the majority of them did not understand what I was saying. Mm-hmm. And I get it. I don't wrap up my mm-hmm. points at this some This is time. 2018. I know the one you're talking about. Okay. Yeah. Um, they didn't. It was did. like, is that kind of awkward silence? It's like, <laughs> he's saying something important, but we don't know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, uh, when Nelson, you talk, you know, and, and I had the opportunity to speak with Nelson a couple of times, do joint presentations with him. You know, whenever he says good boy or good job, boy," it's like, I don't really care if you understood what I said or not. He got it. Yeah. If he agreed, right. you know. So yeah. um, I'm just saying it's not new. And then, you know, it's not like it, it, the whole life insurance industry you spoke of. It's repulsive almost, mm-hmm. you know, the idea that you got to. You know, you've got to build me an illustration, and I've got to talk to three other people, and I've got to compare illustrations, and I'm going to make a decision based on some numbers on a page. What yeah. a tragedy, right? Probably don't understand. <laughs> oh, my gosh. But I don't trust you. Right. Right. I don't trust the other guy either, but the numbers are bigger. You know, 90 is bigger than 60. You know, <laughs> 1.1% is bigger than 1.05%. Yeah. No kidding. And it's in the industry, too, talking about the – home office people we spoke with yesterday and the whom i love thank you for you know yeah yeah but uh, the, they don't listen help we, they don't listen they, they don't surely listen. don't listen an hour in <laughs> do they even own life insurance i'm kidding i know, in I fact know one of do. them does but um <laughs> <laughs> but okay the, man get to it but the idea that a policy loan predicts a lapse you know maybe you mentioned earlier that the loan provision was there so people could finance the premium Mm-hmm. Right, don't have to pay out of pocket. You could just borrow. Well, that's that historically true. Rate. Yeah, I mean, but people still—and that's historically true, sure. But you know, th- at the same time, the numbers are there. You can look at someone who pays a high premium. They have all the numbers. They've got the finance. Right, you got to tell them what the income is. They know that. They know what the premium payment history is. Right, so they, they can theoretically they could put together that this is a high percentage of income going to premium. Right? And then you can see the structure. Right? They know of that total premium, a certain amount's going to base, certain amount's going to PUA. They can see the loan activity on those policies. Oh, my goodness. They can see that the policies are paid. They can see that those same people, instead of lapsing the policies they do them, go and get more policies. Well, so it's uh, like the data's there. Like yeah, the, well, okay. Let, but let's, let's think that through. Let's keep going. Okay, so historically, outstanding loans have been a precursor to a lapse, right? Uh, the policy being cannibalized or surrendered. It's not going to remain in force. It's going to lapse, right? So 150-year history, okay? An outstanding loan is a precursor to a lapse, statistically. But everybody knows that if you have a loan provision that 
and, and like your uncle that sold life insurance or your grandfather who is like the greatest salesman in the world and you and your father, the next two generations squandered everything he did. I'm specifically speaking of someone in California, mm-hmm. right? Because you have a loan provision, everybody knows that has owned life insurance with a loan provision, with cash value or account value, that you borrow against it from time to time. That, that's nothing new, all right? Um, so historically, long-term, high balance, outstanding loans predict a lapse, right? So companies don't necessarily like that. But then consider this, that the lapse ratio is part of their pricing, mm-hmm. all right? And you don't have to be an expert in life insurance, and, and I sure don't want to be an actuarial expert, right? So if a company controls their future obligations, death benefit and cash values, and they adjust to within their abilities to, right, adjust a lapse ratio, or if they miscalculate a lapse ratio, it will affect their long-term profitability. Sure. Uh-huh. Okay. So my point here is that the infinite banking concept with the companies that embrace it, right, the strong, financially, fiscally strong companies that embrace the infinite banking concept, that is one of the strongest blocks of business that they have. If a loan rate is 5% typically variable or 8% on a fixed rate, where's that life insurance company going to go and enjoy that, that kind of return yeah. in today's environment, lowest interest rate in the world ever in history? You know, So <clears throat> um, you got to wonder, now I know that my, my opinion, what I've come to believe that some of these life insurance companies hate the infinite banking concept because they didn't create it, mm. right? And some don't like it because, you know, all of the shenanigans that go on by the sales force who doesn't right. understand the infinite banking concept or capital, right? Or even life insurance. But to your point, stop giving them contracts. Oh, my goodness. They have blistered every home office, CEO, president, vice president, regional, blah, 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 blah. It's like, I never miss the opportunity to share my opinion. Yeah. And in love. I like, you can't love. complain about what the agent force is doing when if you continually give them a contract. contract. Yeah. Right. And they all, and when I tell them, like, stop giving them contracts, you're, you are guilty for giving them a contract. They're like, well, you know, well, you know. It's like, you need the premium so much. I mean, you need the premium that bad or whatever. Um, and I, I enjoy sharing my wealth with my wealth of knowledge with home office life insurance agents. But my point is that the, uh, some of the life insurance companies don't like the, the idea of you becoming your own banker because they, they, they don't want to process a loan. They think that they know better than you what to do with your capital, with your money. Um, they're afraid that it's going to lapse. You know, maybe they think that they can get a higher rate of return on the policy loan. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it causes their lapse ratio to go down and they calculated a higher lapse ratio Mm -hmm. for their profitability. Mm -hmm. Yeah, don't think that that doesn't happen. And you actuary listening, you know what I'm talking about. You home office individual, you know what I'm talking about. You can't disagree with me. Yeah. My thing is they shouldn't get upset about that when they have the data. Like this isn't a mystery anymore. It's not a mystery, but if you properly price a product, 
then it's fine. Right, exactly. Yeah. Well. Regardless of whether they're relatively higher or lower <clears throat> lapsing. And as long as you know, as long as you can predict. And if you have 100 CEOs that make $20 million a year, you got to be pretty dang profitable. <laughs> or how about this last one? I'm going to spread some love on the life insurance companies, right? Just yesterday or the day before. Oh, yeah. <laughs> a, you know, a stalwart 110-year-old life insurance company, mutual company out of the Midwest demutualizes, right? Wonder why. Well, they've been, you know, uh, they've made bad decisions over the last several years. They've been in business 110 years-ish, somewhere around there, right? Demutualized, and I'm like, who's going to purchase them? That's the only reason why a company's going to demutualize. Oh, a private equity, Canadian private equity is going to buy a mutual life insurance company? Wonder why. All those cash values, all those reserves. It's like, hmm. Yep. Maybe they mispriced some products. And you know, when I Googled it, it, there wasn't a lot about it, you know? And so it's kind of, at least it seemed to me, kind of under the radar. Yeah, man, if you're one of those agents that's been promoting that company, it's like, I bet your phone's blowing up, don't. You know, it's all going to be okay. You know, it's like uh, Nelson wrote an awful lot of business with Equitable Assurance. You know, they demutualized because of Harvard MBAs, right? Mm-hmm. These people that want to drive up the stock prices, pump and dump kind of scheme in the long term, drive them up, sell them, fill them up with all, you know, go public, right? Create shares of stock, sell the stock. To all the pensions across the North America, right? And then, uh, you know, of course, it's first private. Get the value up, sell it, and then go public. They leave, yeah. And then short it, drive it to zero, right? Do right it all again. again. Yeah. It's like the same scheme. I can't wait to have a conversation, maybe, if I can encourage Barry Doc to come on and talk about it. Yeah. I'm just saying, um, hmm. These life insurance companies are not squeaky clean. But at the end of the day, they demutualize. So the policy owners are going to get some shares. But where I was going with that, they're like a a $40 billion company. And I read, I peruse a press release. You know, I roll my eyes when I hear it and see it. And it's like, you know, another one, rest in peace. God rest that beautiful structure, mutual structure. God rest their soul. Mm -hmm. $40 billion company. And they're going to allow $500 million for the interested parties, <laughs> i.e. the policyholders and all the other top-end people that are going to probably become overnight millionaires. And the policyholders, $500 million on a on a $40 billion company? Yeah. It's like, shame on you. <clears throat> so, well, look, we were supposed to be talking about Nelson. It's all related. It's all very related. All right. Um, you know, I got to mention, I, I did make some bullet points, and, and I got to mention, and, and this is due to uh, a uh, an, uh, an elderly gentleman, but uh, uh, an early adopter of the infinite banking concept. You know, we were at a, it was either a Night of Clarity event hosted by uh, Carlos Lara and uh, Bob Murphy and Nelson and they had a bunch of Austrians there. Went to a couple of those. It was either there or an NNI or uh, this prior to NNI or a, uh, just a think tank that Nelson, it's probably a think tank. And this guy comes around and says, 
James, we're we're putting together a trip for Nelson and Mary. We're going to go to Austria. It's his favorite place in the world, Austria, Vienna, Austria. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I'm going to get a couple of agents together, and we're going to you know we're going to finance that, and you know, go and enjoy. And I'd never been out of the the country. I mean, I've been to Mexico and maybe on a cruise, but I've never been to Europe, right? <clears throat> and I'm like, my gosh, what would that cost? You know, here, I don't know how long I've been practicing infinite banking concept. And the guy says, well, does it matter? Finance it. You got cash value. Don't you own policies? I'm like, well, yeah, of course. So I'm like, oh, my gosh. It was a revelation for me. Mm. You know, a guy comes up and says, hey, let's go do this. And you're like, How's it, how are we going to pay for it? We're, we're. I'm like, oh, yeah, of course. And so I had the opportunity. And I'm just being thankful of some of the things that this is one of the things that broadened my horizon. Right traveling all over Vienna, Austria, and Salzburg with Nelson and Mary and a couple of other people, my lovely wife, Jan, and myself. It's like, um, you know, you mentioned the word apprentice earlier. I'm like, I tried to be Nelson's water boy, you Mm -hmm. know, for 16 years. So I just don't want to fail to mention the opportunity that I enjoyed with my family, Nelson and Mary, going to one of his favorite places in the whole wide world. Um, and I want to thank you, Ray, for uh, expanding my horizons. Mm-hmm. So, all right. I think I mentioned everything that I noted. Yep. We miss you, Nelson. Yep. And thank you. And All right. Well, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Yeah. I had fun. See you next time. Thank you for joining us on the Banking with Life podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, make sure to like and subscribe and click on that little notification bell. Otherwise, join us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher for weekly content.